Hello and welcome to the 22nd episode of the Football Media Podcast on the team of John O'Shea's platform. I'm John McKenzie and across the course of the new season, I'm going to be bringing you a weekly podcast that seeks to open up the often murky underworld of the football media. This week I'm speaking to Dr. Jonathan Irvine, Senior Lecturer in French at Bangor University. In the course of our conversation, we discuss French football, its media, the role that football plays in French identity, French clubs' trepidation into esports, and the future of the football media. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with your friends, subscribe, rate and review on iTunes in order to help us gain exposure, and if you're a social media person, follow us on Twitter at Footy Media Pod. We'll be back next week with another interesting guest from the world of football media. Before that, though, it's Jonathan Irvine, Academia, French football and esports. Enjoy. I'm joined today by Jonathan Irvine, Senior Lecturer in French at the University of Bangor. Jonathan, how are you doing? Doing fine, thanks. And you, John? Yeah, I'm really good. Always on this podcast, the first question is contextual, so it allows us to, as, as an audience to situate you, uh, what it is that you do and how you ended up doing what you're doing. Obviously, your relation to football media is a little bit left field, so I'm going to be interested to hear how you ended up where you are and what it is that you're doing and how you ended up moving into the area of football, in particular in your research. Well, initially, my research wasn't on football. I, I went to university as an undergraduate to study French in no small part because I was really interested in contemporary French society, contemporary cinema and things like that. Then when it came to my PhD, I looked at French cinema and how it uh, represented issues such as immigration, uh, debates about young people in suburban housing estates known as banlieues. And then from that, I kind of moved on to looking at similar types of issues, but within areas other than cinema. So this involves moving to looking at uh, music, looking at sports, looking at comedy. And that's really what got me onto football, really. And you you spent some time in France, presumably, during your studies. Uh, To what extent did you have exposure to French football when you were over there? And how did that sort of impact your own enjoyment of the sport? I think it was a a major impact to my enjoyment of the sport. Because I think from probably my mid-teens, whenever I was in France, I would get a football magazine or two while I was out there just to see how football was talked about what was different about the way it was covered in France compared to the UK so I actually lived in France for three years I had a year abroad as part of my course as an undergraduate the 2000-2001 football season or academic year depending on how you want to look (laughs) at it and then I was in France again from 2002 to 2004 two years from 2002 to 2004 I was in Lille and 2000 to 2001, I was in a place called Dreux, which is about 50 miles west of Paris. And when you were there, you say you, you picked up uh, football magazines. It'd be good to talk about the, the media. And we'll just talk about that in a little while. But did you did you sort of throw yourself into into the French football in context when you were there? Did you go along to games and stuff? Yeah, yeah. I think the, the two spells in France that I mentioned were different in their own ways. Because in 2000 to 2001, I was teaching English in a French secondary school and several primary schools in a place that's 50 miles west of Paris. And there was a an amateur side in the town that was, I could practically see their ground from my flat. They were in, I don't know, uh, probably not even the top tier of amateur football in France. So probably about four or five promotions away from Ligue 1. So during that year, I almost 
kind of travelled with the Rough Guide de France in one hand and the magazine France Football in the other hand, kind of looking at both fixture lists, different places in France and visited and kind of trying to uh, marry the two, really, uh, finding places that were I kind of wanted to visit for reasons other than football and on a lot of occasions where I'd also be able to take in uh, a big football match while I was there, whether that was Marseille, I visited that two or three times, there two or three times, uh, various other parts of France. I was a lot closer to Paris, so went, went to see Paris Saint-Germain a few times, went to see the French national team, took in matches in other parts of France, the east of France. I remember going to see a match in Metz, in Nancy, in Troyes, and probably in a few other locations that I've kind of forgotten about by then, uh, <laughs> by now. And then from 2002 to 2004, I was in walking distance of the stadium that Lille played in, which they subsequently moved out of. And I went to the vast majority of their home games, also took in games at a variety of other places in France as well. Let's talk about the the football media at this point. I think there's a nice juncture to talk about it. So you, you said you kept up with the with the French football media when you were there. Do you still keep up with it now as as part of your ongoing research? Yeah, I mean, I try to keep up as best as I can from uh, some is uh, slightly uh, remote, uh, but uh, because it's not as easy to kind of physically get one's hands in a copy of Le Keeper mm. France Football. But uh, I mean, there are a variety of online resources it's actually possible to watch what is kind of a loose equivalent of a match of the day, Canal Plus France's programme, Canal Football Club, that looks back at the weekend's action, although it's kind of a bit more debate-focused than match of the day. It's possible to watch that online via Canal's website, which is great. BT Sport, I try to catch a few French games on that, though in some ways I've kind of I've got mixed feelings about BT Sport and their coverage of French football because on one hand I think it's great that they're doing that. I mean I'm personally I'm more interested in French football than uh, Spanish, Italian, German football or possibly even the English Premiership, but it does feel quite scaled back and sort of a bit of a bit more of a bargain bargain basement job than Channel 4 did with Football Italia in the 1990s. What would you say that the main differences are between the French football media and the English language football media? And I realise, obviously, that the media encompasses a huge amount of different media, so I realise that's a bit of a, a big question to ask. And you've already mentioned the differences between the English language coverage of, of French football, but... In particular, let's talk about the written media. Then you said you've you've read France Football and uh, L'Equipe, which are the two big outlets. I think. What would you say that the main differences are? Because it's something I find really interesting. Because obviously, in in the English uh, media tradition, there, there were specific sports outlets like that until the first well first and second world wars put a stop to that because you obviously couldn't survive as a as a solely sport-based outlet really during that time when there was very little sport going on and so those those outlets died out whereas i think the french and the italian uh, cultures they sort of th- their football culture grew up after the war and so you get these wonderful football focused uh, outlets so what would you say that the, the main differences between the french and football media um, are in that respect and and would you say that that has a lot to do with the the fact that they have these dedicated outlets which which can focus entirely on the sport? I think that France is quite different to the UK and indeed Italy in a number of respects when it comes to the written press and football. And 
I would say probably less uh, developed and less diverse in terms of the media landscape when it comes to the written press and sports. So you, I think you, you're absolutely right. You mentioned the two main uh, outlets, L'Equipe, the daily sports newspaper. Then there's France Football, which is a football magazine published by L'Equipe. It looks a bit more like, slightly like a cross between a newspaper and a magazine. Comes out once a week, used to come out twice a week, but it's had various financial problems they've looked at various different models relationships with lee keeps main daily uh, sports newspaper over the last decade and a bit they i mean i think compared to comparing france and italy first of all one of the things i remember about uh, going back to gazetta football italia on channel four in the 1990s you have james richardson sitting at a cafe uh, with his uh, i don't know cappuccino or whatever going through a variety of Italian sports titles, which, as I understand it, are daily sports newspapers. He wouldn't be a French football equivalent of James Richardson, who's sitting with a café au lait and a pain au chocolat or whatever at a French café, really wouldn't actually be able to do that because there's one sports daily in France, L'Equipe. It's not like you've got several sports dailies the way you have in Italy and I think Spain, so that's a bit uh, different. And if you compare the UK and France when it comes to the written press and football, the major difference is that the mainstream national dailies in France devote a lot less attention to sport than mainstream daily newspapers uh, in the UK. They basically, I mean, they have uh, a couple of pages of sport, but lack the in-depth coverage of UK mainstream uh, daily newspapers, effectively leaving a certain type of sports coverage to L'Equipe, France Football and regional dailies. So when I ask the question, do you think there's ways that the English language sports media could learn from their French counterparts? Would you you disagree? To a certain extent, I would uh, disagree because one thing that when I'm talking to people with an interest in football in France academic or otherwise some of them actually say to me look we don't really have much of a football culture in certain respects compared to the UK and I think people in France are sometimes a bit envious when they look at things to do with fan culture fan magazines and so on compared to the UK I mean that said I mean, maybe slightly tongue-in-cheek what was crossing my mind uh, recently was that if Perhaps certain parts of the English language sports media could learn a degree of humility about certain things from their French counterparts, because I mean, certain uh, sectors of the English language football media spend a lot of time uh, going on about this idea that the English Premier League is the greatest league in the world. Mm. I'm not convinced that a lot of the people making that argument actually spend that much time watching or following any other uh, football league. So it's not really the most valid uh, comparison. Because if, if you look at France, France has won the World Cup, men's World Cup twice in the last uh, 20 years, won the European Championships. It's been a losing finalist in both tournaments on a further occasion. But it's continued to kind of question itself in a lot of ways. There have been various controversies during this period as well i'd be interested to hear your thoughts about the the, the concept of of the french league being a sort of considered a, a feeder league to the to the um the rest of the the big five leagues um whether or not you think there's any truth in that what, what you think the effect that that has on france's own footballing identity i think 
on one hand, you can argue that Ligue 1 is perhaps a feeder league. Players are doing well with a team other than PSG. There is a chance that they're going to be recruited by sides in Spain, Italy, Bundesliga and Germany. I mean, Hong Kli would be a prime example of that, and he's not the only one. However, in some ways, I'd kind of maybe reframe it and say that it's almost as if French footballing academies run the risk of becoming feeder institutions for major teams because there are certain French footballers who have won lots of caps, won major honours, but have played very, very little of their, if any, of their club football in France. I'm talking about players like Antoine Griezmann, Raphael Varane, and so on. And that's been one of the things that there's been a bit of a transition over the last 20 years because if you look at the 1998 World Cup winning side, in general, the players who left to play abroad, likes of Zidane, Djorkaev, um, Emmanuel Petit and, and others, they were a bit older when they left France. They'd already established themselves in France. Zidane and Dugarry had, I think, reached the UEFA Cup final with Bordeaux, if I remember correctly, before uh, getting moves abroad. Whereas in the 20 years since then, we've seen more and more players move from academies or even clubs outside the top flight in France to top division teams. I mean, Patrick Vieira, if I remember correctly, was coming through the youth setup at, I think, Cannes, then went to uh, Milan, then came to Arsenal, for example. We should move on to talk about the relationship between academia and football, something that I've found really interesting since going to the Football Collective Conference this, this year. It's where we met, and as someone who was in academia for a long time, I was always a little bit fed up of the fact that, you know, that there seems to be this this dichotomy trotted out between sort of high and low culture, and traditionally in academia, high culture has been considered a, a source material that's worthy of academic study, and, and low culture less so. So I'd be interested to hear about your thoughts on the relationship between academia and football and obviously football played around the world and enjoyed by by millions and millions if not billions and yet not considered worthy uh, a worthy uh, topic of conversation when it comes to academia for a long long time so could you talk to us a little bit about that and how you ended up working on football in in particular uh, in your own work yeah i think it's a fascinating question really and i think that this distinction this dichotomy if you like between high and low culture is really quite a dated mm. separation, really, because when we're talking about a variety of different cultural forms, whether it's cinema, literature, music, there are all sorts of works that sit, are situated somewhere on the border between the two. So it's not as clear cut as one might imagine. And this sort of the relationship between football and academia is really interesting to see within the last week that within a number of obituaries of Eric Dunning, the sociologist of sport who passed away recently. I was was reading one obituary in The Eye yesterday, and it recounted how Eric Dunning in the late 1950s, when he was looking at topics for postgraduate research, actually asked if football was something that would be considered worthy of postgraduate research. In a lot of ways, I'd like to think that we've move beyond that and there's a greater acceptance of the academic legitimacy of football but at the same time I'm not sure we've moved quite as far beyond that as I think we maybe should have. So how was it that you ended up 
working in football in particular academically? What were the sorts of topics that, that led you into talking about it in your day job as an academic? Initially, some of the things were to do with what I was looking at as a PhD student in Leeds between 2004 to 2007, where I was doing a <coughs> PhD about cinema, immigration, integration, diversity in France and that sort of thing. And whilst I was doing that, I, I was aware of how football also provided a way into exploring debates about the state of French society, mm. whether that was in relation to the composition of the French football team that won the 1998 World Cup and how that was discussed in the media, what wasn't discussed, what was overly simplified and so on. So that was something that was kind of at the back of my mind while I was doing my uh, PhD. And I think that at one stage, my supervisors actually said, well, yeah, I've noticed that in your discussion of things to do with immigration and diversity, there's probably three or four references to football in there. And I think they were slightly surprised. Maybe I could have made the general point in relation to something else. Maybe I ended up removing those sorts of references. In the probably within the last year of my PhD, I was involved in organising, co-organising a postgraduate conference on study of racism and within that context I gave a paper about discussions of France's 1998 World Cup winning team and the diversity of the team and so on looked at the sort of different eras when France had arguably had similarly diverse teams but it wasn't played up as much that was something that I maybe kind of parked for a bit as I kind of focused on just completing the PhD turning into a book and that sort of thing but Along the way, there were one or two conferences where I thought, I think I could fit in something on sport here. Uh, I did a paper that sub subsequently became a journal article looking at the mainly about the 2010 World Cup in South Africa and the ways in which the French media and politicians made a lot of the team's failings on and off the pitch and sought to link this to the fact that you had a lot of players who'd grown up in the banlieue, these often run-down suburbs of major French cities, which I think provided a really interesting counterpoint to the sorts of discourses that emerged in 1998 when mm. football was somewhat simplistically celebrated as a symbol of tolerance, French model of integration supposedly working and so on yeah i'd be interested to hear a little bit more about this there's the famous nicolas sarkozy clip where he's speaking to someone in one of the banlieues and he makes some kind of i think he's having a conversation with with a with a white person and is saying it must be hard for you to live in a place like this or something and and obviously as you said the 98 world cup was sort of heralded as as um this is the way that football can can work for for good, and yet, as you said, a few a decade later, and the the same problems were still being evinced across French football as well. So, could you maybe talk talk us a little bit through that sort of aspect of of French football? So, in in French, the nineteen ninety eight World Cup winning side. Remember, the World Cup took place that year in France, which is very important. <clears throat> that side was referred to as une équipe. Black, Blanc, Beurre. So a team that's simultaneously Black, Blanc and Beurre. So Black players of West African, uh, French Caribbean heritage, because a, a lot of them were children or grandchildren, in some cases, of people from these parts, rather than actually having been born outside uh, mainland France. Beurre is a term basically meaning players who were descendants of people from the likes of Algeria, Morocco, Tunisia, Zidane, prime example, son of Algerian immigrants, although he was born in Marseille. And so black, blanc, beurre, so black, 
white and Arab stroke North African. This is a sort of reimagining of the tricolore. It's not bleu, blanc, rouge. It's not blue, white and red. It's black, blanc, beurre. So this sort of, this is all part of a way in which I would, I would say that certain politicians got a bit sort of carried away on the hysteria or if you're being more cynical, sought to exploit this situation and try to make an electoral capital out of it, because this came in the late 1990s. It was a time when the Front National, Jean-Marie Le Pen, was then leader, far-right anti-immigration party, had won uh, mayoral elections in a number of places in France, in particular the southeast of France. Jean-Marie Le Pen had said in the mid-90s that players who were uh, black or who were of immigrant backgrounds playing for the French national football team didn't always sing the Marseillaise, the national anthem before the game. So in some ways, 1998, this was maybe an opportunity to try to put the far right in its place and say, look at this tolerant, modern vision of France pulling together uh, and so on. Ultimately, it didn't really lead to lasting social or political change. And if you look at what happened Four years on, on the well, on the football field, France were spectacularly unsuccessful in the World Cup in Japan and Korea. That's the one where they lost in the opening match to Senegal, went out in the um, first round. And that was also the year where Jean-Marie Le Pen came second in the French presidential elections, which was a major shock at the time. So clearly the Front National, the far right, that was an issue that hadn't gone away. And if you fast forward to now, uh, the last few years, when Marine Le Pen came second in the most recent French presidential elections, that was something that shocked very, very few people. And that kind of shows you something about the extent to which the far right isn't actually in the minds of as many people seen as an extreme party compared to 20 or even or 30 years ago, for that matter. I mean, admittedly, I, I think it would be fair to say that a lot of what's been going on under Marine Le Pen is airbrushing or trying to present the party somewhat differently. So it, it, one thing that's interesting about the 2018 World Cup victory, I think you could actually say that probably there are there were more uh, players in the 2018 French World Cup winning squad who are from visible minority backgrounds than in 1998. But... A lot less was made of this and there wasn't the same sort of national euphoria, if you like, and surveys, uh, opinion polls carried out by leading polling organisations in France really bore this out. And people weren't as optimistic about what this triumph symbolised and so on compared mm. to 1998. And I think the, the interesting correlate for that 2018 be the England team where uh, it felt as though a lot of the media coverage around that England team was similar to the French coverage of the French team in, in 1998 and obviously there's there's a whole kind of political hinterland in the UK at the moment that might explain that so I think there's fascinating overlap there really. We should move on and talk about esports as well, because uh, as I've already mentioned, we we first uh, met at the Football Collective Annual Conference last year at Hampden Park, and you gave a paper there entitled "Harnessing Esports: How French Football Teams Are Seeking to Boost Brand Exposure Via the World of Competitive Video Gaming." Could you tell us a little bit about what the paper is about and how it emerged in your work? Because it's, it's a slightly different angle to the stuff that you've done before. Yeah, you're right. It, it, it's slightly different angle when it comes to the ways in which I've looked at French football and what aspects of French football I've looked at. Initially, it was 
something of a coincidence because some of the work that I've done on French football and other aspects of contemporary French culture, I've presented at day conferences organised by the French Media Research Group and I've organised a number of those events jointly with colleagues such as Hugh Dauncey from Newcastle and Cahill Kilcline from Galway. And I think it was probably in about 2016 that Hugh Dauncey said to me, well, I think that video games incredibly popular in France, status of France in the world of video games in terms of state recognition, business aspects, production, consumption of video games. This is really important. Why don't we do a conference on this? Uh, like My initial attitude was, yeah, fine, happy to help uh, co-organise. I'm not really sure if I'm going to be in a position to put forward a paper. I kind of felt that it wasn't quite my area. But then it was actually a YouTube clip that I came across. I can't remember how. A French footballer, Jimmy Briand, playing at the time in the Bundesliga, celebrated a goal by imitating a goal celebration from, I think it was the uh, FIFA uh, video game. So that kind of got me thinking about how, on one hand, you've got situations where football video games are trying to replicate what happens on the pitch. And there you had something that was almost the opposite. A footballer trying to replicate a football video game on the pitch. And then you've got something interesting going on about how something makes a journey from real life event on the pitch, goal celebration that is then copied in whatever football video game. And then what a player may copy on the field is kind of like a copy of a copy. It's coming very sort of hyper real into the realms of works of people like uh, Baudrillard and uh, and so on. That kind of got me interested in ways in which the sort of boundaries between football as a sport and football as video games are narrowing a bit. Uh, and there, there's some uh, fascinating literature out there by people like Gary Crawford and others that look at the place of video games in football culture, video games within the fans' sense of relationship with football teams, football competitions, and so on. And I think France is a particularly interesting case study due to the fact that it's it occupies quite an important place within the world of video games and that its government has been a bit more proactive in recognising video games, recognising esports, competitive video gaming compared to a lot of countries. So the paper itself sort of explores the way that a lot of French football clubs are trying to, um, as you said in the title, boost their brand exposure using um, video gaming. And I think the thing that I find most interesting about this is, and I've spoken to a lot of people actually, people who I know who work with in, in various clubs around the world about the video gaming aspect of it. And something you make clear in the paper is that it's not simply FIFA or pro evolution soccer that, that are, uh, are, are garnering interest from football clubs it can be anything it could be games like league of legends uh which is uh, one of the most popular i i, I don't know all of the a- acronyms but <laughs> you'll have to fill me in on that but one of the most popular um online games at the moment so yeah i'd be interested to hear your your thoughts about that it's it's not it's not simply that football teams are looking here and being like well if something's about football we can quite easily amalgamate that with the, with the stuff we're doing already it's it's buying into the whole uh, idea of esports in general any kind of competitive video gaming that could actually open them up to um, this burgeoning market of of youngsters around the world who are spending a lot of their time playing video games yeah i think one of the things that the more i've looked into it that 
I've become more aware of is that in some ways the worlds of football and esports are not actually as compatible as one might think because on one hand you've got major video games titles such as FIFA, Pro Evolution Soccer, Football Manager and so on. There's a new version more or less every year. These sell lots of copies. There's one year recently where I think the FIFA video game was the most bought cultural product in France, for example. So FIFA Pro Evolution Soccer and various other sports video games, such as the Joe Madden American Football Series, these are big in terms of sales. But where they're not big is in the world of esports. On one hand, yes, there are some tournaments in the FIFA series of video games, Pro Evolution Soccer, which in some cases are recognised by the international or national football governing bodies, which in itself is quite interesting. But when we look at the world of esports, competitive video gaming, the sport sh- should not be taken to mean that the most played games are anything to do with sport. Mm. So the, you're absolutely right. It's games such as uh, World of Warcraft, League of Legends, these, uh, these massively multiplayer online role-playing games or MMORPGs, as I think they're known for short. These are the big titles and i think this creates a bit of a challenge for football teams because on one hand i think yet yeah, video games what can do with having a sort of a team in the esports leagues for fifa pro evolution soccer whatever and indeed in france Ligue 1 and ea sports created the first football esports league anywhere in the world it's a bit of a landmark but if football teams are to make it big in the world of esports they they need to be able to compete in the in sort of the big games, the likes of World of Warcraft and League of Legends. But that's something that they've struggled with. I mean, PSG, who've done quite a bit in terms of trying to work on their esports strategy, they've struggled to break into these markets because they're already well-established esports teams in these types of leagues. And I think there's a degree of incompatibility because on one hand, it's about tapping into new markets. And I think particularly significant issue I want to say a bit more about is links between French football and the Asian market. But what I'm not 100% clear on what this can or will ultimately achieve. Because on one hand, it's about trying to embrace a new public, a new sort of a generation of fans. But the question I'd ask is, well, are players of... World of Warcraft, League of Legends, necessarily going to be all that interested in football as a sport. Mm. I mean, at a push, yeah, maybe if PSG or Olympique Lyonnais or Lille's esports team get big, maybe they'll be interested in the esports team, but I'm not convinced that they will necessarily start following Ligue 1. And then at the same time, football teams, they have shown esports matches with a of like football games and big screens at their stadium sometimes as part of the match day experience to use that term that probably grates with some fans but that's not something you can do with the likes of world of warcraft league of legends where as i understand it these are games that take a lot more time to play they're a lot more uh, complicated they're not as kind of time framed and not as kind of spectator friendly especially from the perspective of people who may not be all that into video games 
Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I think, I think from my very amateur perspective, it seems as though the, the assumption is that esports are considered really important now because, um, you have a, a huge market of, of youngsters who are spending their disposable income on, on esports. The problem is, is that when you try and make those esports into spectator games, in the case of FIFA, you kind of think if someone wants to watch a game like FIFA, you'd think that they simply watch the actual football that, that is available. And so it becomes quite hard to monetize, I think, in quite the same way that you can with something like League of Legends uh, or w- World of Warcraft. Uh, and so it almost feels as though what's happened here is that a lot of, a lot of uh, football clubs have been like, well, esports are big. There's football esports. Let's get into that. And then they find out very quickly that they, they're in an area in which their expertise is, that is, is worth not, not very much. And they find themselves out of their depth. I don't know whether or not you would agree with that sort of uh, assessment. Yeah, I think, I think that's what's happened with PSG's team who withdrew from leagues in certain games because they just, they weren't managing to, to compete because an esports team, when you, if you look at Paris, Paris Saint Germain, they're, New sort of club motto since the Qatari investment has been Revons plus grand. So let's dream bigger, basically. So if your aspiration is to be in the winning the Champions League or I mean getting the semi-finals, final of the Champions League, you could argue that your brand is devalued if you have an esports team that is struggling at a fairly middling or minor level of competition. And mm. in some ways you could say that PSG on the pitch are aspiring to be competitive commercially or on the, or uh, in sporting terms, the likes of Real Madrid, Juventus, Barcelona, and Manchester United. I mean, they're not there yet, but in the field of esports, they're a bit more partic thistle, if you like, no offense to, fans of Partick Thistle or anyone in the Scottish uh, second tier but that that's one of the challenges I mean we've seen a lot of big statements from French football teams directors commercial directors I mean Lille they have their director of marketing communication and ticketing sales said a couple of years ago from the moment we decided to participate in esports it was our duty to have the same expectancy levels about being competitive that we have with our flagship team I think that's wholly unrealistic, really. Yeah. Uh, Lyon made similar uh, statements. And in some ways, I think that French football teams, indeed other football teams, they're cuddling on to esports just in some ways because they see it as an in thing of the moment. Uh, if it wasn't esports, maybe it would be something else. Is it more than an, an ends to a, a means to an end? I'm not entirely convinced because, I mean, if you look at the way PSG have talked about marketing strategies and so on, they've talked about wanting to become, and they've used the term a lifestyle brand. And in one statement talked about agreeing partnerships in the worlds of music, fashion and art, all worlds interest us. So that kind of gives you an idea of where things are at, where things are at in terms of French football in the last five or so years or slightly more five to ten years you've seen a lot more foreign investments so PSG with uh, Qatari money playing a big role Chinese investments Olympic Lyonnais OGC Nice in the top flights are at least part owned by Chinese investors even in the second tier uh, Sochaux and Ozer historic names but a bit kind of down on their fortunes at the moment mm. have benefited from Chinese investment their number of clubs Marseille and Bordeaux, who have had investment from American investors. And I think that esports is particularly important to remember. It's really, really big in Asia. And some people argue that esports kind of started in Korea. 
is very big in China. So Olympic Lyonnais uh, have uh, Lyon. They have a, an esports team in China, a Chinese esports team who compete wearing a kit that looks almost identical to the football shirts that Olympic Lyonnais wear. In PSG's case, they've launched a, a sort of commercial development shop, stroke leisure zone, not sure how to describe it actually, in a commercial centre in Shanghai with a view to trying to uh, zoom in on esports a bit there as well. So I think ultimately French teams are trying to embed a sort of esports engagement and strategy within the context of wider commercial strategies and building partnerships with Asia. So not just a sort of traditional sharing coaching expertise and trying to get some of the best up and coming Asian players uh, playing in France, but looking at it in terms of wider commercial strategies. No, that's really interesting. And if I can make a, a very spurious segue here into obviously this this podcast is a media podcast. It's, it seems as though a lot of the things that are that are happening in football clubs' attempts to sort of harness esports is exactly the same sort of thing that is happening in in football media's attempts to harness things like social media. And that is always um, realizing that the revenue has to come from somewhere and how you harness that revenue. So I'd be interested. To, to move into the area of talking about um, the, the media, uh, football media as we know it, and and actually the crossover there between things like esports and the football media, given that a lot of the conversation we've had today has been about the way that esports is becoming more and more mainstream, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts about what impact esports will have on the football media as we know it. Do you think there are ways that within the media we could respond better to the emergence of esports and, and how do you think that might look? So maybe kind of wind it back a bit further. I think that football, <laughs> when we look at football and, and video games, what sorts of things that are discussed in the media currently, they're to do with video games, but they're not really all that to do with esports in some cases. So when it comes to interaction between video games and football, there are things like the partnership agreed between Prozone and Football Manager when it came to databases about player information and so on. That's kind of really interesting sort of link between the database used for within a football video game that almost becomes an object of envy for football clubs or some, some of whom actually are uh, are reported to have started using Football Manager before the Football Manager ProZone database to check stats on various players. And if you look at the coverage around the time of transfer deadline day in the UK, especially online coverage, not necessarily uh, your uh, Jim White fueled Sky Sports News hysteria. But if you look at the news feeds on the BBC Football website, I think sometimes the, the websites of various UK newspapers, when you've got a team from the UK who is interested in signing a little known player from abroad, sometimes the kind of person that's giving supposedly an insight in the player is not a football journalist from that country. It is an experienced player, a football manager will say, well, this player, when you play football manager, he tends to do this over the first two or three seasons. And this is how he evolves as if the way in which certain algorithms or whatever within football manager are actually going to provide a sort of reliable forecast of what the relevant player is mm. going to do for his new team, which I think is it, it's, it's quirky and amusing. I don't think it's necessarily all that valid from a sort of scientific <laughs> or methodological uh, perspective. I mean, I, I think that one of the things that because I think 
esports almost has its own forms of media, and I'm not sure if it cares terribly much about mm-hmm. whether it's the subject of coverage in printed newspapers. Because I mean, printed press in the UK, we've seen it a lot of titles uh, going smaller, having financial difficulties, and so on. And I think this is probably something you've. I think it's something you've touched upon in a number of episodes. To what extent are we actually going to have? people going out and buying a printed newspaper even in five, ten years' time in the UK uh, compared to now. It's probably going to be pretty limited, arguably, as dwindling somewhat already. And in some ways, what, one of the peculiarities with esports is it, it already has its own media, its own methods of diffusion, these online streaming services such as Twitch uh, and so on. And I think that perhaps shows the way ahead or shows something that football broadcasters are tapping into with more and more games being broadcast online legitimately or otherwise. Uh, you touched upon, I think, on the podcast near the start of this football season, the rise of 11 sports and how they got this deal to show the main La Liga games in the UK, more or less online only. This is the way I access the BT sports coverage of European football, such as the whether it's the Champions League or the uh, French Ligue 1. I, I don't have a subscription to any pay TV channels, but because I get the internet through BT, I pay an extra however many pounds a month it is to be able to access BT Sport. So I kind of project it from my phone onto the TV screen or watch it on the laptop and so on. So I think that's a shape of how football is evolving to a certain extent because I have a feeling that Netflix and Amazon, what they're doing with football at the moment, with various football documentaries, one-offs or series, such as ones about Sunderland, uh, for example. Mm. There have been ones uh, with other teams on uh, Amazon or Netflix that have focused on Boca Juniors, uh, Juventus. We've seen this with other sports. It's almost as if Amazon and Netflix are trying to say, look, we get sport, we get football culture, we get rugby culture, we get American football culture, so that this is almost like a first step into then having a greater degree of legitimacy when it comes to bidding for live rights. I think is it next season we're going to see a relatively limited number of English Premier League games being shown on Amazon. Not a massive number, not necessarily the prime picks, and I think there are quite a few of them are midweek, but it's a significant step in a lot of ways. Well, Jonathan, I've taken up so, so much of your time already, but um, the last question on this episode is always about the future. And I think we've already started moving uh, into talking about the future of the of the football media here anyway when, with, with these um, ideas about how esports could be taken into less traditional forms of media. So I'd be interested to hear your thoughts about the actual future of the football media. Do you think that the football media will have to go a similar way in in, in, in the sense that you've talked about uh, the way that the, the broadcasting has had to go online, the way that there's less concern by a lot of people within uh, the world of football to actually have any sort of responsibility to the traditional media uh, and being able to, uh, I suppose, move into online areas with the advance of technology, allowing people to run their own websites, allowing people to run their own own YouTube channels, run their own podcasts. Is that the way that you see football media going in the future from your vantage point as an academic outside looking in? I think to a certain extent it's what we're seeing already Mm. in that on one hand blogs, new media facilitate things in terms of user-generated content, 
But at the same time, it's worth asking, do they actually reduce the extent to which people are prepared to pay for a printed version of a newspaper, a weekly or monthly football magazine, a football programme? I mean, when I go to a football match most of the time, I don't pay £3 for a programme because unless it's a particularly memorable match, new team, new stadium, whatever, I know that I can look at the team news lineups, formations on an app on my smartphone and uh, at best I'd be reading the programme on the train on the way home. So I generally don't get a match day programme. And one thing that's interesting actually in France, by the way, is France has never had football programmes in the way that the UK does. In general, it's just been a sort of free kind of not not much more than the team list team list and maybe uh, a few little short feature articles fair bit of advertising but often like four eight pages maybe so quite brief uh, just kind of pick one up for free on the way into the ground that's it so there's not been this sort of fascination with you know program collecting and so on i think in the uk i get the impression that the arrival of an importance of blogs, online media, creates a significant challenge for football fanzines, notably. So that's quite a quite a big issue. And as you touched upon another aspects, another episodes recently, one of the questions is: Well, how ready are people to pay for content, and what sort of content are they prepared to pay for? On one hand, people have. I mean, maybe less so now than in the past, being prepared to pay a certain amount to get whatever daily newspaper, a, a, a monthly or even weekly football magazine. But it seems that there there aren't as many as there used to be of weekly or monthly titles. And the difference between France and the UK, there's not really the same diversity of football publications as in the UK, uh, which in some ways, some ways is a shame because... There isn't, for example, really an equivalent of when Saturday comes in the in France. To a certain extent, there was for a few years with a magazine called Cahiers du Football, which was quite subversive in its way, but that's relatively quickly became an online-only publication. Well, it basically a blog-stroke website rather than I don't think it has a sort of pay or subscription model on its website. So I think that. The media, the print media faces all sorts of challenges. And when it comes to the televisual media, there's a question of how much more money can be made from television deals without tapping into new markets or new methods of Mm. broadcast. Because it seems that the main sort of one of the main growth areas for like the English Premier League, it's foreign television rights and the amount of money that can be made for that. I think that there were possibly not all that far from a point where people due to legal and illegal streaming and so on are going to get fed up with having to pay a certain amount of money per month to watch a certain number of games of their big teams and indeed to have several different subscriptions because if you want to watch the English Premier League you basically need Sky if you want to get most of the live games. You also need BT Sport for the Champions League. Domestic Cup competitions are a bit more on free-to-air television. France is broadly similar, although actually you need, I think, three different um, subscriptions if you want all the live games in French top-level league football, the Cup games and the European football. So I think France and the UK are at the same point in t- terms of TV subscriptions, which I think is a challenging point for the industry and challenging 
point for football fans who don't have uh, endless um, amounts of money that they can spend on these sorts of things. Jonathan, thanks so much for coming on. What are the best ways that people can follow you and read your work? I tweet regularly at J underscore Irvine. That's J underscore and then Irvine, E-R-V-I-N-E. I've got a research blog where I talk about football and other topics. It's drjonathanirvine.wordpress.com. So when I've done articles for websites like The Conversation, which is a bit of a crossover between academia and mainstream media, which is quite interesting, I'm able to repost articles there and a few other things. I posted there, reflections on football and media, football and racism in a French context, wider issues to do with breakdancing, potentially being in the Paris 2024 Olympics and things like that. Thank you so much for coming on today. Okay, thanks, John. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Football Media Podcast with me, John McKenzie. If you've enjoyed the episode, please subscribe, rate and review on iTunes or follow us on Twitter at Footy Media Pod. We'll be back next week with another interesting guest from the football media. But until then, have a good week. Goodbye. Goodbye.